It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. And actually WhatsApp's already coming in, including one from Michael, just to warn people of what Michael is describing as the latest Bank of Ireland uh, scam. He got a message um, just in the last while to say, hi, we've cancelled all your reoccurring card payments as requested. BOI. And of course, they haven't. So just be very, very careful. They're coming up with new ones and different ones every single time. And of course, they hope that in a moment of complete distraction, if somebody's busy, that they click on the link and before you know it, your bank account could be completely uh, emptied. Uh, Yesterday, we were talking about people's uh, frustration with waiting lists in hospitals. It's kind of one of those ongoing things, how, you know, upset people can get and why, you know, with the amount of money that's spent uh, in our health uh, service. And, you know, the budget overrun this year is going to be colossal, which means they're going to need even more money uh, poured into the HSE and into our health service uh, next year. And, you know, people, there's an understanding. People can get very frustrated if they've been waiting a long period of time. I think particularly if you're in pain. You know, being in pain is a very, very, it's very difficult to live in pain. But if you know that there's an end date, that there's the possibility that something's going to happen when you go to see a consultant, when you go to see a doctor, that you're either going to get medication that's going to help you or you're going to get an operation that's going to help you. But I think when people are left on these waiting lists for very, very long periods of time, they can get very, very frustrated. And and that seems to be one of the reasons why there is an alarming rise in the number of doctors who have suffered or witnessed abuse. Now, the abuse... It's not just verbal, it can be physical uh, as well. And uh, it's coming from angry patients, but it's also coming from angry relatives. And this was just in the last year. Incidents uh, include being held at gunpoint. That was in one very extreme case, while staff have been headbutted, staff have been bitten and uh, punched. Uh, Staff shortages are also being cited as a major cause of some of these uh, attacks. Now, the survey... uh, was conducted and the findings uh, revealed in a survey of nearly a thousand doctors. It was carried out by the Medical Protection Society. The frightening incidents include being held at gunpoint by a patient demanding drugs, while one described the work environment for nurses as absolutely brutal, brutalising. So it isn't just uh, doctors that are suffered, but obviously this particular 
survey was a survey of doctors but obviously some of the doctors decided to speak up for the nurses uh, as well. Doctors have received threats from patients saying they'll call the local radio station to complain about them. Uh, Legal action has also been threatened and then the dreaded possibility of somebody saying I'm going to report you to the medical uh, council and that's obviously putting a lot of fear into doctors. One doctor recalled how a patient and their relative became extremely aggressive and ended up throwing a chair in the doctor's uh, direction. Now, the reason for that particular dispute was they disagreed with the medication that the doctor was about to prescribe. They decided that they wanted a different uh, medication. The doctor obviously was trying to say, no, this is the best medication uh, for you. And both the patient and whatever relative was with them got really, really aggressive and decided to throw a chair at the doctor. Uh, Crazy, crazy uh, incident and shocking to think that a doctor had to put up with that just by going to work. Now, racist abuse, that's their homophobic abuse, all uh, commonly experienced according to the doctors. Many times they say though it is the relatives who become abusive rather than the patient um, themselves. Some then will often write a complaint letter uh, to the hospital. It's uh, as though one of the doctors says we're the cause of their problem rather than we're here to try to help them. More than 60% of the doctors surveyed were either the victim of abuse or had witnessed it. Now this is just in the last year. This isn't in the the working life of these doctors. This is just in the last uh, 12 uh, months. 37% said that this had resulted in staff shortages, nearly four in 10 reported that the abuse was sparked by the frustration of patients on waiting lists. So that really doesn't come as any real surprise to me, but people shouldn't be taking it out on the doctors because it isn't the doctor's fault. They are and the nurses are doing the best that they can to get through the waiting list. So it really isn't their fault. The survey also found that 86% of those who had experienced or witnessed abuse in the past 12 months said it went on to negatively affect their own mental health. More than a quarter said the rise in abuse and intimidation from patients had actually made made them reconsider their career in healthcare. Now that to me is a big worry from this particular survey. A quarter of doctors believe abuse against healthcare professionals is not taken seriously by the Gardaí. The Medical Protection Society said it is now calling on the government, they're calling on Angarda Siakona and the HSE employers to take every possible step to address this uh, issue. And a Dr James Torp is quoted in this particular uh, report. He's the Deputy Medical director with the Medical Protection Society. He said, um, while long referral waiting lists and staff shortages understandably can cause stress to patients and to their families, and doctors very much understand that, healthcare professionals are really just trying to do their best and they're doing their best under very, very challenging circumstances. Now, he did say that while most patients are very, very respectful, he said it is troubling that so many healthcare workers are now facing aggression and intimidation. Experiencing and witnessing abuse, he said, can have a profound effect on the mental health of a healthcare professional, which then obviously can go on to detrimental effect to the individual, but also to patient uh, care. I mean, nobody wants to be seen by a doctor who's under so much pressure because of abuse they have received or they're there in fear of being abused by somebody else. I mean, they're not going to be able to give you their best, are they? It can also result, he said, in healthcare staff needing time off work, 
that just makes the waiting lists even longer. Ari said some are contemplating leaving the healthcare profession completely. All healthcare settings, he said, should provide an appropriate forum uh, where those who witness or experience any kind of abuse from patients can talk about it and that they can seek appropriate well-being support, which obviously isn't there at the moment. And he went on to say that the Gardaí could consider how they could support healthcare settings, for example, by encouraging reporting of the abuse, by better communicating to the public um, the consequences of the abuse. So I take it, while for this particular survey people were asked and they said yes that they witnessed or they had been the victim of verbal or physical abuse very few of them are going on to report it and maybe that's what we need uh, to to start happening maybe it needs to be reported more maybe the HSE as the employers need to put in place every single avenue available to support the healthcare uh, staff and hopefully through that some of this abuse might stop but as I say it doesn't surprise me to hear the doctors themselves say that some of this abuse, which isn't right, of course we're all, none of us are saying this abuse is right, but some of this abuse has been sparked by the frustration of patients on waiting lists. And a reminder of an interview that we carried earlier on in the week but it ties in with today. Today is National Compliment Day. It's a new day that's been put together by Jigsaw, the wonderful charity that works with children and young people. And they're hoping today that wherever you are, out and about, just pay a compliment uh, to somebody. Uh, you can tell somebody that they're looking really well. If you're going in for your cup of coffee this morning, make sure that you thank the person, wish them a nice day, somebody you're living with, pass on a compliment. And it's just all about a kind of it's like kindness. It's just like being kind today uh, more than anything. And if you uh, can remember Jigsaw uh, today, if you'd like to donate, you can donate online to jigsaw.ie forward slash you're a star and you can donate online Jigsaw had an incredibly difficult uh, year last year and they've helped more children and young people than ever. And sadly, more children and young people came forward to uh, Jigsaw and they needed help because they're feeling anxious. Some of them were feeling isolated. Some of them were stressed and some of them simply contacted Jigsaw because whatever's going on in their little lives, they were more afraid than uh, ever. So uh, Jigsaw, wonderful, wonderful uh, organisation that do fantastic work with uh, children. So by donating to Jigsaw on National Compliment Day, your kindness will uh, change a young person's life for the better. So can I just say to each and every one of you, you're looking great today. 0818 103 103, lines open. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie. Cork today on C103. According to a leading authority on sustainable energy, the lack of second-hand electric vehicles in the car market is a real barrier when it comes to seeing more EVs on our roads. Professor Hannah Daly of University College Cork spoke at the Oireachtas Climate Committee this week and she joins me this morning. Good morning, Johanna. Good morning, Patricia. Thanks for having me. Well, and thank you for joining us. Do you believe many people would like to make that switch to an electric vehicle, but the cost of them is the real issue or the perceived cost of a brand new EV is a big issue? 
Yeah, I mean, while like electric cars have far lower running cost than than petrol or diesel cars, but people tend to look at the upfront cost of a car, of course, because because that's that's what people's budget kind of allows. I mean, over over the lifetime of a car now. In a lot of categories, EVs are actually already cheaper because the electricity is much cheaper. They're just far more efficient, and you're not wasting all that energy when when you're when, when petrol and diesel is being combusted. But you know the and and the cost of electric cars is coming down. So now you're you're getting EVs with decent range, you know the thirty thousands, um, which is far less than the average car, the average new car that's bought in Ireland, which is now almost forty thousand. So I mean, for people who buy new cars anyway. EVs are definitely more affordable, um, but most of us don't buy new cars. You know, we, most of us rely on the secondhand car market, uh, and and there's a real lack of options in the secondhand car market uh, for, for electric cars. So so certainly, and I think there's a few ways that that we can we can drive that in. And, government policy is needed there the first is simply to drive up new ev sales now so that by the you know later in this decade that there'll be more electric cars on the second hand car market because if could also just to, on people who do buy electric buy new electric cars do they hold on to them for longer than they would um, a I'm, not sure diesel the, car. I'm not sure what the evidence suggests, but 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 I've I've heard anecdotally that people tend to hold on to them longer, um, because you know once you've bought the new car, you you know it's it's people tend to love um an electric car when they've bought it. It's a big investment, um and um and I suppose that there's no need to 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 upgrade after a couple of years like like you typically would. So I I've, I've heard anecdotally just that, that people do tend to hold on to yeah, them longer. Yeah, yeah. So could we import second-hand electric vehicles? Is I mean is that uh, an option? Well, we could. I mean, we already import lots of secondhand cars. Um, I mean, it's gone down a bit since Brexit. We 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 would have imported almost as many secondhand um, cars as we buy new cars, and that would mainly come from from Britain. Um, and but but the vast majority of cars that we import from Britain are are fossil fuel cars. There, you know, we, there used to be a kind of big sale in in especially diesel secondhand cars uh, coming across from Britain. So you know, the government could look at something like cutting the the VAT or the the, the kind of import duties on on full electric cars from Britain because of course their market is about ten times bigger than ours so there's just far more secondhand cars that we could be importing now the only other option for right hand car drives is the likes of Japan and it's you know shockingly I've, I've heard of people actually importing used used cars from Japan because it's worth it because the prices are are, are are in sometimes good but it's it's a very long way to go absolutely um, <laughs> when we we can be tapping into the market next door uh, I mean another radical option is to is to is to switch uh, switch uh, to, to to driving on the um, on the right hand side of the road but I don't think we need to go there yet uh, so that we could tap into the to the um, to the European market have we any hope of reaching the government's target what was it nearly one million EVs on the road by 2030. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, when that was first announced, I thought that was um, very, very optimistic and uh, probably not not feasible. And, you know, there's still a lot of discussions among different experts that people would disagree, but I've actually become far more, um, far more kind of convinced that it's it's possible and Is it's it? actually necessary as well. Uh, I, I think the switch might have come when I when I bought um I bought a second-hand electric car myself um, uh, a few years ago, and I'm now driving a nine-year-old Nissan Leaf. Yeah. And now it doesn't have the kind of range that you get of a new electric car, but it's perfect as one of the family cars. It does most of our miles. Um, and and since then, you kind of realise what a 
what a much more what a kind of cheaper car it is to run what a, it's very pleasurable to drive as well um and you feel like you're doing your bit for the environment but you know it, new electric cars the sales are growing really really rapidly and we could be seeing the vast majority of new cars sold within a few years being electric and that combined with importing more used secondhand cars um would actually see us meeting our 1 million uh, EV target by 2030. Well, I don't because I I thought I read a report during the week that was showing the sale of EV cars but that the sale of fossil fuel cars was growing faster than the sale of electric. Yeah, and that's a problem. So we tend to kind of think about our climate targets as being sort of more of the good stuff, more electric cars, more wind turbines, more solar panels and all that, which is all very important. We need to do all that good stuff. But the the main thing to cut our, our greenhouse gas emissions is to do less, is to buy less of the polluting th- things. And so you, you kind of, the, the, main, the main focus has been on looking at the, the growth in EV sales. So we're, I see that growing exponentially, which is great, but actually people are buying more and more fossil fuel cars um um than ever before as well so that's um so that's a that's a concern and we spoke at the arctis committee a lot of focus on that was on the growing size of new cars as well the weight is is really working against those kind of technological improvements like 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 electrification so the typical new car that's bought now is about 300 kilograms heavier than it was uh, 20 years ago uh, and that's just because cars are getting bulkier people are people are getting higher and wider cars and that and that has a lot of negative impacts not just on on greenhouse gas emissions you know th- those those cars um, need a lot more fuel to drive but it's also kind of a, a road safety issue uh, it makes vulnerable road users a lot more vulnerable to in, in, within crashes you know SUVs are much more likely to kill a child when if if, if they're hit by hit by them because of that high bonnet for example yeah, and you only have to park outside any school any morning at drop off or collection time to see the increase in uh, SUVs. It's it's incredible the amount of these big SUVs on our road. Yeah, and and I was looking at the census data, which tracks how people get to work and school, and four times more children and students are driven um, to school and college now than they were in 1986 when this was first tracked like four times more doesn't children. surprise and, and of course the, the rate of walking and cycling that have plummeted and those two trends are, are related to each other because the more cars on the road the less safe it is to walk and cycle yeah so then you know it, it's just this self-perpetuating thing but i like i don't blame parents here you know i drive my kids to school because it's not safe you know, there's no school bus and and they have to um and 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 uh, and there's no safe walking and cycling route. So what, the, what we really need government kind of intervention here. You need you need them to to make uh, safer um, bike lanes, safe footpaths, and to put on school buses so that parents aren't tied into um, driving their kids to school. And we have an ongoing issue, uh, Hannah, with school buses, particularly in some of our rural areas. Um, it's just there's just not enough seats on the school bus, which is really, really unfortunate uh, for parents. Somebody is asking, uh, does Hannah think the government could be doing more from a financial point of view to incentivise us to buy electric cars or are they doing enough? Yeah, they, they, they recently cut the grant from €5,000 to around €3,500 and they also kind of put a limit on the value of, of an electric car. And, you know, I, I think that that on, on balance that the cutting the grant um, is probably 
reasonable because you know the the idea of a of of government subsidizing a really you know what could be like a a 40,000 euro car for a wealthy family is probably not a, a kind of an efficient or fair use of of the kind of climate funds um but what what the government could be doing is for example giving people uh well what what they're doing and what they need to do is to invest much more in the public uh, uh public charging infrastructure because that's a real barrier to people. People need to uh, trust that when they need to get that fast charge, that, 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 that there'll be a charger working and available. And while it's improving all the time and, and most people will charge at home, um, you know, it's it's really important and the government is investing in that. But what I think the government could be doing is to give more individual information to people about how much they stand to save from um, fr- from driving an electric car if, if, if they can afford it in the first place, maybe giving low cost finance so that, you you know, pe- people who mightn't have the cash in the bank to fork out for that kind of high upfront cost will be able to spread it over um, over a longer period, um, and um, and again looking into cutting the, the the taxes on importing used EVs as well could be something that that really makes it a lot more affordable to a lot of people. Yeah, I can see a couple of people are picking up on the public charging points, including Bernard, uh, which you've just mentioned. But he says he would be fearful that if there was a surge in EV purchases, uh, would there be enough public charging points? Well, the, the number of public charging points is growing very quickly as well. So I, I think that's very that those things need to go hand in hand, um, and 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 that's that's important. We'll stay, I would say especially for people living in the countryside. You know, a, a typical new EV that you'd buy now would do 400 kilometers on a single range, and now that would comfortably get you up the country mm. on one charge, and and then you'd you'd kind of the idea would be, would be that you'd charge when you'd get to your. So you wouldn't you know, need to be stopping, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and as 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 sort of as the EV range gets gets longer, the need for the fast chargers gets gets lower. Now you do need like de- what what we call destination chargers. So when you get to your let's say um, you know hotel if you're staying or if you're going up to a match or something like that, that 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 whatever car park that you'd be parking in would have a slow charger that you could plug into for a couple of hours, and that's much cheaper. Uh, and less less kind of draining on the grid as well. So so you can, there's a, there needs to be that balance between different kinds of chargers as well. Kevin says, would you ask Hannah, your guest, please, where do the components from the batteries for electric cars come from and how are they produced? How long do the batteries last and where are they recycled? And how long is the waiting period for replacements? Is there an issue with replacements of the batteries? Um, there is, I mean, if most batteries come with, with a very long warranty. Um, so if there's any issue, kind of technical fault, they, they will, re- they will replace the battery. Um, but actually electric car batteries have been like, there was, when the market started to take off, there was general kind of uncertainty about how long they'd last and whether they'd be faulty or they catch fire and so on. And actually battery, electric car batteries have, have, been proven to be a lot more reliable than, than we feared. So there's a study that came out during the week, for example, that said that a lot of EV batteries actually outlive the car itself. Oh, that you yeah. know that that, that 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 they can be um, that they that, that they're you know the the charge might drop um, you know a couple of percent over years as as you use it. Um, but 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 overall, that those those batteries have have you know have a decent life, and they also can have a very good um, second life. So you know, my, my as I said, I've got a, this nine-year-old Nissan Leaf, and there, there's a company now um, that will, uh, if if you've decided that you kind of want to to up the range and replace the batteries, that that they'll install new batteries and give it a boost of charge and kind of refresh it, and they'll install those those uh, the old batteries from your 
um, from your old car into your house. And then that can, for example, work with solar panels. So the solar panels during the summer or you can buy cheap energy at night from the grid and then you can charge your home batteries and then use that um, to, to, to sort of basically power your house for the day. So this is kind of very uh, interesting use for the, the second life of batteries as well. But actually, the vast majority of the, the components in batteries can be recycled. And now the, the industry hasn't taken off yet because there hasn't been the need yet. But but there will certainly be a big industry in um in battery recycling as so more fact, and more that, cars come on the road yeah, yeah. and, are you, are you and that's not to say that's not to say the batteries are perfect i mean like any kind of mining or manufacturing has environmental impacts and yeah. you know that's, that's the case for lithium and all the, the materials that go into um, um, batteries but you know the, the real important thing here is is what it's replacing and what it's replacing is uh, is fossil fuels once you burn a liter of petrol or diesel that's gone forever and uh, and the pollution is basically in the atmosphere which is which is warming our planet and we're really in a in a very bad situation with climate change at the moment we have to do whatever we can to get um, to, to reduce our, our use of oil. And, this is one and way. electric cars are really a, 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 an excellent way of doing that. They bring a lot of benefits as well, like they reduce the air pollution uh, and, and they reduce energy import dependence. So like like all the electricity will increasingly come from renewable energy that we generate in Ireland. It's it's a great kind of win-win story for, for, for Ireland and for, for people. Okay, and I'm just out of interest when you say you have a nine-year-old Nissan Leaf, are you still on the first battery? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and now the charge, the, the charge is now, I mean, I can, can monitor, it's about 85% of what it was originally. Uh, but that's, you know, one of the first generations of, of electric cars. So um, it's, you know, nine the, the, years the on. Ones. That's not bad. That's not bad. Exactly. And just yeah. finally, yeah. it's interesting here, you say that the running cost is, is so much uh, cheaper. But with the, the, the continuing higher cost of, of electricity, is, is that not costing you more? Yeah, even even with the higher electricity, you run the numbers and you're saving probably like three quarters on on the fuel bill, especially if you have um, kind of a smart tariff. You know, more and more of us now have these um, tariffs where where we pay more electricity when you plug in at you know or, or at, at five to seven o'clock at the peak time in the evening but you get much cheaper energy at night so some of the electricity providers have even these ev rates where you have super low um electricity co- um, costs between like two and four in the morning and it's very easy to set a timer in your car to charge during that time so then you have extremely cheap okay. uh, driving so, so especially for people who who drive a lot they're they're the ones who stand to to gain the most um and then and and then, of course, you just plug in at night um, and, and get those night rates to, to, to bring that down. So a lot of taxi drivers, for example, would do that. OK, listen, uh, Hannah, enjoyed uh, our chat uh, this morning and, and well done for your contribution at the Iraq uh, Climate Committee this week. But thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is Professor Hannah Daly. And uh, Hannah is at uh, University uh, College Cork, uh, where she's the Professor of Sustainable uh, Energy. 0818 103 103. I can see a lot of calls and comments coming in about EV cars and we will get to all of them. Just uh, going down through some of your uh, texts coming in on electric vehicles. Well, I think everybody likes the idea of driving an electric vehicle. Some people are still... 
I think, worried about what would happen if you were driving along and you couldn't find an electric charging point. I mean, to me, I think that would be one of my uh, greatest fears and others um, still uh, talking about the cost of electricity. Um, one person says, um, Patricia, on, elect- on the electric car batteries, the electric car batteries are a disaster. Uh, they only last five years max and then you could be lucky that the charge would be between three and 5,000 for a new uh, one. Well, I think the first generation batteries, I think that's what Hannah was talking about, the first generation batteries, they have improved hugely since the first electric cars came out. I mean, she was even saying herself, her own car is nine years. The battery's been in it nine years and it, it's still uh, working fine. Uh, this is from John and who also says, and by the way, how are China, India and the USA, how are they getting on with their climate uh, targets? And hi, Patricia, what happens if and when the electricity goes out or fails? Well, there's a power outage like we had with uh, Storm Agnes this uh, week. What are people expected to do then if their electric cars don't charge uh, overnight? You wake up in the morning, there's been a power outage and you have no power in your car. I don't know what the simple solution to that one would be. 0818 103 103. Now, a study on the traveller community in North Cork has shown that some schools are still segregating children into traveller-only classrooms and even encouraging some to leave education at the age of 16. To discuss the report, I'm joined by Dr Patricia McGrath of Adult Continuing Education at UCC. Good morning to you, Patricia. Good morning, Patricia. And How are you? I'm very well and you're welcome to the programme. Now, are we? I'm assuming here we're talking about some primary schools having this as segregated class that only has children from the travelling community. So would that be made up of children from all different classes, all different age groups? Yes, from what I can understand from... So my research was um, I had folks groups with traveller parents of children that are currently in primary and secondary school in the region. And I also interviewed some educators in schools in the region. And it was somebody from one of the other schools that said that she come to her attention that um, there was a um, segregation of traveller-only class. So one parent went and took his children out of the class and got them back into mainstream. So it was quite shocking, actually, because I didn't realise that this was still um, a practice, you know. Because it was a practice, but you're talking many, many years ago. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you think things have improved, but um, it seems they haven't, you know. And there's also... Um, issues with um, reduced timetables. So traveller children, I know this is an issue that children generally are waiting for assessment because schools only have one next assessment per year. Um, so traveller children are sort of the most marginalised because they don't have um, the literacy skills at home to help with homework and to um, to encourage them along, you know, to, to help them and support mm. them with their schoolwork. So... Um, Without assessment, behaviour can escalate and they're not learning in class and um, they end up on reduced timetables. So there was an incident where there was one child that got fifth class and, um, you know, he's been put on a reduced timetable now. So his social development is also... um, I suppose, missing out there as well, you know. And the very fact of what you mentioned, that they don't um, have that literacy support at home because, you know, many of their parents would have left school very early and and and, and for some uh, don't have any reading or writing skills. These are the very children that we need to keep in the classroom as long as possible, not put them on reduced hours. Exactly. 
I mean, they do need to find, I think the thing is to play to the child's strengths and um, not exclude them from other areas of, of the day as well, like sports and other activities that go on. You know, a child could be talented at art, talented at sport. In fact, that particular child had a substitute a substitute teacher that um, took him on a sports day and um, he came back and told the parent it was a substitute teacher, obviously came in with fresh kind of um, view on the situation and he came back and told the parent the child was talented. So if that had been nurtured even at a younger age, you know, it, it could be very small things that offer a child some support and encouragement, you know. How often have we heard that? All you need is one good teacher to to see to see the skill that's there. And also, I mean, uh, um, if if children don't mix in the classroom, and I mean, if if we, if we ended up having more of these traveller only classrooms, if they don't mix in the classroom, harder for them to make friends, harder for them to mix then and play out in the playground. It's really making these children stand out as as somewhat different. Absolutely. There are others in the classroom then when they move on into secondary school. So it makes secondary school more difficult because it's harder for them to settle into the classroom. It's more difficult for their peers because they're, they haven't sat with them in their primary schools. So it's, it's more difficult all around because the stereotypical sort of ideas are perpetuated then throughout the cycle, you know. Um, children become disillusioned. They're unhappy in school. Um, then there, there's also the, the issue of um, teachers encouraging them to leave school because they'd get married or they can go and work with their daddies is one of the, the suggestions. And we do know that there's very high unemployment in the travel community as well. So where did they go to work with their daddies? Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, and, and as every academic will tell you, education is the route out of breaking that unemployment cycle that can exist in households where you can have three and four generations who never worked. Exactly. I mean, it's not, it's not just a one, a one issue or one reason that people are unemployed or, you know, I mean, the lack of education obviously is one, but this sort of stereotypical um, view of the traveller community as well is, it's perpetuated through. And the women that I spoke to say this is normal everyday life for them, you know, that they could have this discrimination in all aspects of their lives 10 times a day. I, it, it really is quite shocking what people have to endure. Could it lead to some parents trying to hide their traveller ethnicity from the school? Absolutely. Yeah, that was something else that came up actually, that um, uh, parents mask their children's identity because of their own experience and they don't want their children to suffer the trauma and humiliation that they've suffered themselves in school. So um, there's that intergenerational trauma that persists as well, you know, that, that they've had some really bad experiences and you could visibly see the, the trauma in them and the shuddering when they recalled because they, the, the, the memories were surfacing, I suppose, talking about their own children's experiences that they they were reminded of their experiences. So they shared some of those with me as well. And, it, you know, it's it's quite shocking, really, what people... And, um, and, and on a positive, uh, Patricia, you did find schools who acknowledge and celebrate traveller culture, and that did make a difference. Yes, and I'm glad that you asked me that question because I was trying to figure out how to get <laughs> this in. Not all schools are, um, you know, not all teachers. Not all, I, I know the teachers work in 
um, very different contexts. Sometimes they're under-resourced in many areas and they're doing their best, you know, and there are some teachers and schools that go that extra mile. So there was one school um, that I spoke to the principal. They work with um, all cultures and they celebrate intercultural art projects and different cultures' um, identity and um, they bring the travellers in to do storytelling with the children to participate in the, the art and artwork and different projects. So it really is um, a lovely um, model for others to follow, really, you know. I think if there was more of that going on where travellers were, were celebrated and, there was, you know, the, the, the schools and educators should have traveller culture awareness training and I think that the government should roll that out as mandatory CPT for for, um, educators. Like we, we live in such a multicultural society now of which one of those cultures is the travelling uh, community. It's one of our own indigenous cultures. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we should have a better understanding uh, of it. It's, 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 it, it, it's actually depressing to see parts of this uh, report but good, as you say, good will end on the positive note on those uh, schools that do recognise and celebrate uh, traveller culture. Listen, Patricia, great study. Well done to you on it and uh, thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Thanks very much, Patricia. Uh, good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Dr. Patricia McGrath of Adult Continuing Education at uh, UCC. Some listeners, when I mentioned at the top of the programme that today is National Compliment Day, it's a day that uh, Jigsaw are hoping is going to become an annual event. Now, they're doing it, obviously, as a fundraiser for the work that they do with their uh, children and uh, young people, particularly around mental health uh, issues. But they're also hoping that it just gets into the national psyche and that we compliment each other and that we accept the compliments, which was something we spoke about earlier in the week, that we're not the best at accepting uh, compliments. So thank you to some listeners when I mentioned it who sent me a lovely text uh, complimenting myself and, and uh, John Paul. And a big, big thank you. We really do uh, appreciate them because definitely we're not the best in this building either for accepting uh, compliments. I'll be the very first one to say it. Love to give them, but I'm not great at receiving them. So thank you to the people who took time out to WhatsApp and text uh, this morning. Now, I mentioned also in the last hour, and it's quite worrying when I was talking talking about the amount of uh, abuse that unfortunately doctors are uh, receiving in our hospitals and it's a, a survey out showing you know for verbal and uh, physical abuse on our doctors and many of them are cited the reason that it's to do with frustration that when if somebody is on a hospital waiting list or has been asked to wait for an exceptionally long period of time when they eventually do get in to see the doctor they can take out their frustration on the person who's standing in front of them and as one of the doctors said, we're here to help, you know, we're, we're, we're here to try and help you. Uh, but people, the frustration, just anger, I think, sets in and reaches boil, boiling point. And some of the doctors pointed out it wasn't necessarily the patient. It was the person who was with uh, the patient. And I suppose they're trying to advocate on behalf of their loved one. But, you know, throwing a chair across the table at a doctor is not advocating on behalf of uh, your loved one. But, to, you know, to hear that the chair was thrown across the table because the patient and the relative of the patient didn't agree with the medication that the doctor was prescribing, they felt, you know, they, they not being the doctor, felt that they should be prescribed uh, something else. And that's when the anger uh, really boiled uh, over. But you, w- you would really feel for the doctors and nurses, particularly the ones that work in very stressful environments. You know, you're thinking immediately of an accident and emergency uh, department and on a very, very busy night. And if people are waiting hours and when they decide then to vent their frustration at either the nurse who's trying to help them or the doctor that's trying to help them, 
uh, it really just doesn't become a nice place to work. You can almost sense the tension and the atmosphere there. Well, uh, Billy heard me talk about that particular survey. And uh, he said he was in, um, he was with his doctor. But he says it was about three weeks ago and the doctor wasn't happy with him and said, look, I'm going to have to send you into uh, A&E now. But he said it was a Friday night at about seven o'clock and you're thinking, oh God, A&E, C-U-H, seven o'clock on a Friday night. How long am I going to be there? So off Billy went. Anyway, he did as his doctor said and went up to the A&E. Now he was there an exceptionally long period of time. He was there until one o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So from seven on Friday evening until one o'clock on Seven on Friday until one o'clock on Saturday uh, afternoon. Didn't get a bed, didn't get a trolley. He was sitting on the chair for his entire time. But he said the one thing he did notice was he said the staff at the CUH, he said they were absolutely fantastic. He said they were running around. And he said one of the reasons that they appeared to be so stressed and so busy was there was a lack of uh, staff. But Billy says it's absolutely pointless abusing the staff. They're doing the very best that they can. But Billy felt watching the situation that they were simply under-resourced. He said there were so many very sick people in the A&E. So it was people, you know, we're always getting accused that people go to A&E, they don't need to be there. But uh, Billy said what he was looking at was very, very unwell uh, people. But he said, please, to people, don't blame the doctors and nurses and the orderlies and the porters and everybody else is working in the hospital. It's uh, the government who are at fault. They need to put extra staff into our hospitals. Thank you for your call, uh, Finbar, and hopefully whatever was wrong with you all got sorted and you're well on the road to recovery. And then stay on a a, a medical issue because Finbar in Ballancolic, out of the blue, has contacted us about this one and it's to do with the use of the word geriatric. Now, I'm assuming that Finbar is of a certain age and he doesn't like the word geriatric. He feels could it not be replaced by, say, OAP, which is old age pensioner. He said he doesn't like the term. And whenever he's visiting hospital, he said to see the word geriatric written over the door or a sign pointing you to the geriatric uh, ward, ward, he feels the word uh, discriminates against uh, older people. And he feels he would prefer to see a sign saying OAP ward or over the door of the doctor, OAP doctor. How would others feel about it? Do other people not like the use of the word geriatric? So I decided when I saw Finbar's comment come in, I tried to find the origin. Where did the word geriatric uh, come from? It actually is is from uh, the Greek word for geron, which means old man, and the attic part of it means healer. So it is a medical term. Geriatric is for diagnosing and treating and preventing diseases in older people. And the actual field of geriatrics, that was first coined back in the early 1900s by a medical doctor in Mount Sinai in the States. He was the first to write the term geriatrics and he actually wrote the first textbook on geriatric medicine but it's used it's from the Greek word old man and healer. So it is a medical term. The only thing I will say to you um, uh, Fimber uh, it, the word geriatric does get used in medicine quite a lot. I know a friend of mine took huge umbrage when she was going in to have her baby and she was about 34 or 35 maybe 
And it was written down on her medical notes that she was a geriatric mother. Now, I don't know when, when the, at what age geriatric mother kicks in, but she was in the States at the time. And, uh, but she was about 35, 34, 35, and she took great she was disgusted that she was being classed as a geriatric mother but because she'd gone over a certain age that was the term that was used. Anyway, we'll throw it out there to see what do others uh, think. Are you for or against the word geriatric? Would you like to see it replaced? And are you like Fimber? Do you see it as a derogatory word? 0818-103-103. I will be talking in a minute about some of your comments and views that are coming in on electric cars following my chat with um, Professor Hannah Daly who is is, uh, works in the area of um, of the environment and trying to be more sustainable and she's trying to push more and more people uh, to go towards electric cars and she was at the Oireachtas Climate Committee uh, this week and people are worried about the climate and we all know we need to do more is moving to electric cars the way to go and I happened to mention during my chat with Hannah about the number of SUVs, the very large SUVs, particularly if you're outside any schools. I don't know what it is. Why why so many SUVs seem to be used on the school run? But I pass a lot of schools both in the morning and certainly when I have to collect Marsha in the afternoon, I'm I'm, I'm about four schools I end up having to pass and it seems to be... The cars just seem to be getting larger and uh, larger. That's prompted somebody to say, Patricia, we need to take most of those SUV cars off the road. They simply are too big. They were never designed to be out on our roads. When large SUVs were designed, they were designed for use in the countryside. Many of them were used for agricultural and farming uh, vehicles. And then somewhere along the line, they all got smartened up and we decided we put them out on the road instead. But this listener isn't, isn't for being told what type of car they should uh, drive. People should be allowed to make their own minds up about what car they can and would like to drive. Well, I, th- I think that's what's happening. Even at the moment, people make their own minds up about it. But just on the on the SUVs, there has been a big increase in the number of uh, SUVs on uh, our road. I think four out of the top five cars sold in Ireland last year were uh, SUVs and I think that trend is being followed again this year which is very worrying that we are continuing to buy so many of what the Americans will call would call gas guzzling uh, cars and I know the government are looking at it and from a climate point of view they are certainly worried about the number of SUVs that are on our roads and there is a measure I know that was introduced in France where they put very punitive taxes on SUVs that are fossil fuel SUVs and there is a push to do something similar here in this country whereby it will be the weight because a lot of these big SUVs they're very heavy so they could base it on the weight so people may may end up having to pay extra road uh, tax etc and I don't know whether that would change people's minds about driving an SUV uh, or not but but the, the one thing that Hannah made the point was the amount that you can save by driving uh, an electric uh, car and I have to say there's not great news for people who do have fossil fuel cars and I put my hand up and say I'm driving a diesel uh, car a combination of a surge in crude prices and then there's a weak euro at the moment relative to the dollar that now is driving up the price of motor fuels and there's really a bigger worry is that it's driving up the cost of home heating oil and obviously it comes at a time on the home heating oil when houses are ordering the oil as the winter comes in. Higher energy costs are one of the main reasons why inflation climbed back to 5% uh, this month and, and if 
if we see a surge in crude uh, prices and if we see a surge in petrol and diesel and home heating oil going on, you can be guaranteed this time next month when we're looking at the inflation figures uh, for the month of October, they will be, it will have risen uh, again. Pressure on petrol pumps will mean the government now is set to face even more calls to hold off on the planned hike in excise duties as an extra 8%, 8 cent due to go on a litre of diesel and 6 cent on a litre of petrol. That is due at the end of October. Now it is expected that the Finance Minister Michael uh, McGrath will have to address that issue in next month's uh, budget. I think everybody is saying he can't go ahead with an extra 8 cent on diesel or 6 cent on petrol, not with the way the petrol prices uh, are going up and petrol diesel prices are going up at, at the pumps. Now, along with the upcoming excise duty hike, if it does go ahead, there is another rise in carbon tax on petrol and diesel. That will be announced on Budget Day, which is the 10th of October. And you can bet your bottom dollar when they announce a carbon tax on October the 10th, that will increase within hours of the budget speech. That will come in from midnight. Now, crude oil prices have surged to their highest levels, it seems, in almost a year. I was looking up these figures yesterday and that's what's prompting the fears now that a litre of petrol or a litre of diesel could go over the two euro mark. Now, I'll take you back to July of last year. That's when the prices of both fuels were over to uh, euro. Um, and that's what prompted the government to move in and give a little bit of a help by reducing some of the excise duty, which they always said was only going to be a temporary measure. We're climbing back very slowly to that figure. The sharp increase in crude has pushed the cost of home heating oil. Now it's up by almost 300 Euro. That would be if you were completely filling your tank. And that's just since last May. Rises in the cost of motor fuel and home heating oil. And that comes at the same time when seven electricity and gas suppliers, they thankfully have announced they're going to have cuts. Many of them are taking effect from November. But customers relying on home heating oil and motorists, though, any gains that we're going to make on lower electricity prices will simply be wiped away with the extra cost we'll pay for the home heating oil and the extra cost we'll pay to fill up our cars and the September AA Ireland Motor Fuel Survey, they are showing that the national average price for petrol, 185 and that's up 15 cent. It was 170 last month. Diesel has gone up even more dramatically in the month. That's also at 185 uh, a litre. And back in August, it stood at 164. So diesel on its own is up 13%. The rise in wholesale cost of petrol and diesel, and then of course did get exacerbated by the increase in, by the putting back the extra round of the excise uh, jewel, the restoration and that happened at the start. That was on the 1st of September, wasn't it? That kicked in and that was when the government added the 7 cent went on petrol and 5 cent went on uh, diesel. I saw Blake Boland who is the Head of Communications at the AA. He said the higher cost of crude oil there's always higher demand in the winter months and then the last of the excise duty restoration, if the government are brazen enough to go ahead with that, it certainly will put the price of petrol and uh, diesel back to the two euro mark, if not uh, higher. And then you add to that problem this weak euro against the dollar. That's also pushing up the price of petrol and diesel because they always buy crude oil. It's always priced in dollars. And the Brent crude oil, they're the figures we kind of watch to see where it's going on the world. 
world market. They're now standing at $96.91 a barrel. That's very close to the $100 uh, a barrel. Crude oil, by the way, it's at their highest since almost a year ago. It was November of last year that they were at that $96.91 cent um, a dollar for a barrel of uh, oil. And the prospect of drivers being forced to pay €2 for every litre of fuel was, as I say, one of the reasons that the government decided to introduce the temporary reduction on excise duty. Will they go back and look at it again? You'd like to think that they will. Experts are pointing out that adding duty to fuel prices means transport costs go up which in turn then puts pressure on prices around the economy. We live in a small island. Everything has to be delivered around the country. So if transport costs go up, you know the knock-on effect when you're going in to do your grocery shopping. Everything will go up. Speak to the grocer. They'll say everything's gone up because delivery uh, costs. Uh, Home heating oil. If you haven't purchased your home heating oil it seemingly has really shot up in recent weeks. You were a wise person if you bought it During the summer months, it's now on average 1,175. That's for a thousand litre, which kind of most of our standard tanks will take a thousand litres. That really is high. And even in the last month, that has gone up by 50 euro alone. But if you had purchased the thousand litres of home heating oil back as recently as May, you would have got it for 889 euro where it's gone from €889 in May. If you were buying it today up to 1175 it could be a very chilly winter for a lot of people this year. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. C103 Jobs. Experienced pipe fitters are wanted now. It's for a new project in Raheen in County Limerick. CVs please to jobs at hamiltonfrench.com. Solace Tech Installation and Ventilation in Fomoy. They're looking for general operatives with safe pass manual handling search. You also need to have a full clean driver's licence. CVs and a cover letter, please, to jason at solacetech.ie. General operatives within a food environment are wanted for Ballyvorney. Email cmurphy at frsrecruitment.com or you can call 86 176-966. An part-time accounts assistant is wanted for Munster Drone Services. They are based in Mill Street. CV in a cover letter to HR at MunsterDroneServices.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. We're going to stay on the subject of cars for a moment, be the electric cars or SUVs. And there is a, a big push to try to limit the number of SUVs that are on our roads because it seems uh, last year and the trend is certainly there again this year that four out of the top five cars sold in Ireland were SUVs. Derry, you come in defence of uh, SUVs. Good morning to you. And you have kind of, you reckon you understand and know why so many SUVs are on the road. Good morning, Patricia. Yeah, I'm not a major public speaker or anything, but I suppose I'm advocating on behalf of people with disabilities. Okay. So, um, like, I suppose, if you look at SUVs in general, but 
you could class an SUV as being maybe a rather large car at the minute because if you have three children, a lot of the cars, standard cars, you can't put three car seats across the back seat. So you have to get a bigger car to get the third seat in behind you. So you're now into a seven-seater car, so you're, you're getting into the big vehicle then straight away. Yeah. So um, I suppose Minister Raymond Ryan doesn't seem to, to, to account for that issue at all. But getting back to where I'm advocating from is from the, dis- the, the, the disability. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. These sort of things. Um, a lot of the disability vehicles now because of the adaptions with um, going electric and because of the uh, shortage of cars that are being manufactured after COVID, there's only two brackets of vehicle really out there now. And one is pretty much like the size of a, maybe a, a, a Kinect van or a, or a, or a, a KD van, that size um, uh, car, which will just about take a, a wheelchair into the back of it. And if you have another child or two, you're, you know, you're, you're pretty compacted with, you know, you know, boot space, obviously, because that's where your wheelchair is. So, it's either that size vehicle, which is, and there is a VRT recam for it, but it just about covers the VRT recam, just about covers it at the minute. But if there's any adaptions to be made to that vehicle, the, the person with the disability has to pay the vest, and they don't claim that back. So if you have to go, if you have a family with maybe two children or three children, and you have a child with a disability, you're into, you're into a bigger vehicle again, which is like maybe a, a, the size of a, cor- a Ford Courier van, which is a seven-seater vehicle. But Eamon Ryan is classing that as a, a high-emissions vehicle. Now, he's after putting a €6,000 loading onto any automatic vehicle due to emissions. So I presume he has scientific proof to show that, uh, uh, um, that an automatic vehicle is more emitting than, than a standard mm. gearbox vehicle. But he, and they're giving, they're giving a bigger VRT uh, reclaim for that. But what they're not telling anybody is that you can't change your car after two years. You have to keep it for six. Yeah. There's always a sting in the tail, isn't it? Yeah, so but, I, but, yeah but, but but I think in, in fairness, when, when you hear 
um, particularly environmentalists talking about, you know, the the gas guzzlers and, and, and the bigger SUVs. I mean, I don't think anybody is targeting a family like you, uh, Derry, who has no other choice, but you've got to get a large vehicle. If you've got a, chi- a child in a wheelchair, you need the space for the wheelchair, you need the space uh, for the other children. But I, I think what, what a lot of people are complaining about are the amount of SUVs, they don't have three car seats in the back seats. They might be collecting one little deer. It's almost become like a status symbol in some schools. Well, yes, but I can understand that. But I suppose the other side of things is, is people are starting to go into bigger vehicles a bit more because the roads are so bad. Yeah. You're driving around yeah. in a small car and you, and you mean the potholes that we're meeting at the minute. You're saying, right, um, you know, I need to get a, a more robust, robust vehicle to start having the roads around. Yeah, that's, that, that is a really good point. And do you feel safer in a bigger, well, you heavier know, car? Because the roads are getting worse. There's more traffic. The, road, the condition of the roads is worse. The speed is worse. Um, so you're kind of saying, okay, you know, I'm going to pay, the, I'm going to pay for the extra emissions to be safer on yeah. the road. But if I get back to what I'm looking at, um, you're, because he's trying to reduce the amount of big vehicles on the road, he's automatically pulling all the people with disabilities into that bracket. And, and, and it's, it's that society of people who, who find it more difficult to try and keep up you know, and change yeah. your vehicle. There, there has to be, okay, he's doing it, I can appreciate from an environmental point of view, but there has to be within his rules exceptions for. There should be, yeah. 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 Have, you, have you mentioned that to Michael Moynihan, who we had on this week, who has, who's with the Oireachtas Disability Matters? He's great for bringing up issues like that. I, you know, I'd love to because I've sent an email on this matter to Anne Rabbit, who passed me to the Minister for Social Protection. She passed me to the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, who has passed me to the Minister for Finance. I have emailed all of them and I've got no reply. Okay, I, I, I'll... I'll put you back out to John Paul and we'll get you the email address from Michael Moynihan because he's, because I read through their budget submission and I know that that vehicle registration tax issue for people with disabilities was mentioned. I just don't know, um, with, is he aware of the anomaly? Because that is an anomaly. Uh, people with disabilities are just, are getting fined almost for all the wrong yes. reasons. You, you have no other choice. I'll put you back out to John Paul and, and get on to Michael and, uh, let, let's see if we can, He'd be certainly the man to talk about and he'll push it in the right direction. He's great for it. Listen, Derry, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. I'll put you back out to um, John Paul um, who'll um, uh, take uh, the details uh, or give um, Derry the details. I want to stay on electric cars though for a moment because we spoke about electric cars in the last hour and there was a number of texts and calls that came in. Let me just tell you some of them. Not everybody is happy about electric cars. Uh, Jim um, says, hope you're well on International Compliment Day. I am Jim and I return the compliment and hope you're well too. Jim says, what's the story about the price of the electric batteries and how much they cost? They say it can cost almost the same amount as your car uh, when you go to replace it. So if you end up replacing the battery, is it like buying a car again? I think they've really come down in price, Jim, from when they first came out, the very first 
version of electric cars, the batteries were hugely, hugely expensive and didn't have a very long life. But I think all of that has uh, changed. Pat in West Cork says all this talk about electric cars makes me wonder where is all the electricity going to come from? We've been told that we may not have enough electricity supply all of our houses with all of the new houses going up. What if there was a power uh, cut? And someone else says, Patricia, is there any consideration given to the children who have to go down the mines digging for the cobalt that makes these batteries Recycling is impossible. What happens if they go on fire? Many have done and we all know when an electric, when, when electric battery goes on fire, you can, they're really, really hard to put it out. I've, I've seen some video footage online of trying to put out the batteries, trying to put the uh, fires out, even though just on the recycling uh, one to that listener, I thought uh, Professor Hannah Daly, who raised the whole issue on the electric cars, she was saying for her battery, what can now be done with batteries is that they can be used and installed. The old battery can be used and installed in your, in your house and you can get cheap electricity on it and then it can be used to power when electricity is more expensive or when you're in need of electricity. So they're working all the time to solve a lot of those problems with recycling. John O'Donovan uh, joins me. Good morning to you, John. Morning, Patricia. I'm very well, thank you. Are you a fan of electric cars? Not really, for the simple reason I think there's an agenda here, especially coming from the green agenda and not just only the Irish green agenda, the green agenda worldwide that um, to get as many cars off the road as possibly by keep, like the cheapest uh, car I think you can buy tomorrow, an electric car, is 28, almost €29,000 and it only has a range, I think it's uh, 270 kilometres, I think, right? No, that's almost 30000 really. No, look, nobody knows the second-hand value, yes, because there hasn't enough of them come on the market as regards the second-hand end of it, Patricia, right? Mm. So we're still in the wilderness there. no. I know of a case now where just as well the car was still within the warranty, right? It went into the garage because the, the, the battery decided to give trouble. It took two mechanics, two full days to remove the battery. He said, there's about 4,000 screws on the battery, if not more. And it took two mechanics, two full days to take out that battery and to replace it with a new one. If that had warranty had been uh, up on that precise vehicle, you would be talking for the two days there about two mechanics and were involved about four thousand euro. Yeah, but then, so, but then that's one that's one case. You, you know, if I was to put a shout out to people driving electric cars, you'll have. I mean, even Professor Hannah Daly, who joined me, she's her car is nine years the Nissan Leaf, and she's still on the first battery. Yeah, but the I mean, you you, you you can buy any. Fossil fuel car, and you can be lucky or unlucky. We've all we all have heard of problems uh, well, with cars. There's a friend of mine there, and he drives a twenty-year-old Fiesta, right? And he gets a service regularly, like a lot of people in rural Ireland. Oh, they have old cars, right? And as long as you get them service regularly, Patricia, mm. like I reckon, my friend, he'll get another ten years old that Fiesta. But the thing is, like, he possibly won't be low drive that car in another three or four years with the green agenda again. And, it's and why, why, why are you so, I mean, the, the green agenda is all to do with re- reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, I think everybody accepts we might like the idea of some of the things that we may have to do, but we do have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Well, but, but what annoys me about it, we're being honest, but as you held up as the poster buyer, poster girl, no, at this stage, no. And I think it's a point not, not, not a 1% 
we put up into the atmosphere. So basically, if we do nothing, absolutely nothing, no, it would make no difference whatsoever to so-called climate change. And what I'm afraid of is that the average person who gets a loan after credit or whatever and gets a car that's four or five years old, whatever, will be actually off the road because they won't be able to afford it. be like my father in the 60s when I was a young man, young child, looking in the window at the local showroom at the Ford shop and could never, on the wages he was affording at the time, buy that car, Patricia Wright. Is that what we're going to go back to, right? Because I can see only the elites driving and the only average people that had cars before standing by watching these people pass by. I don't want to see that there. Yeah, but that's why, I, you know, I think Professor Hannah Daly, when she was at the Oireachtas Climate Committee, I mean, she very much accepts that cost is an issue. And that's why she's saying we need to, um, if, if, if needs be, we need to start importing second-hand electric cars, start bringing them in so that people can have electric cars available to them. Yeah, well, at, at, at a similar price to what we pay for a fossil fuel car. Yeah, well, it, well, that's it. Like the whole problem is, like, what price will they come in at? Yeah, and will will they be affordable? How long will they? See, nobody knows. Particularly, like, I mean, okay, you quoted the car she was driving that lady, you know. But I mean, like, nobody really knows. Like, I mean, the length of the battery, like, and what the battery will cost. Some people say it will cost eight to ten thousand for to replace a new battery, right? I mean, like that. That's you could get a very good second-hand car now for ten thousand euro. Besides having to lash out on a bloody battery, that's just after packing in on the original car that you bought. And I'm just worried, like, I mean, going forward, like, as I said, that uh, the agenda is there, maybe, like, I mean, to push the odd average most of off the road so there'd be less yeah, cars on the well, road. Yeah, and listen, if Eamon Ryan, and as you call it, the green agenda, there'd be none of us in cars. He'd have us all no, on pot. Which, just, which, you know, in the ideal world seems great, but we don't have the public, we don't have the infrastructure. No, well, you see, the problem is like they're signed in like, that you'll get a home charge, all right? And that lady said then that maybe you'll find a convenient time at two o'clock in the morning, you'll set your time up and the car will start charging. But so if everybody does that at the same time, then, I mean, the costs are going to go through the roof. The, 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 power, the grid won't be able to cope. And what's going to happen then is the electricity companies will decide when you can drive your car, not you. They will decide, and they can decide to charge us, Patricia. They can charge what they like because you'll, they'll have a, ca- a captive uh, audience then that if you, unless you charge in and you use electricity services, then basically you can't use your car. And they can charge what they like. OK, and we all know the price of, uh, of electricity. And somebody just says uh, to ask John, uh, how long does it take a mechanic to replace a new engine in a diesel car? I'm a mechanic and I can tell you it would take the very same length of time that those mechanics took on his friend's car to get out uh, the battery and look at the price that a new diesel engine would cost. So it's not a great argument. Electric supply is the only real stopping block. So there's a mechanic uh, who's in favour of electric cars. All right. Listen, uh, can I just pass one comment on something else? Go on. Yeah, uh, on your news bulletin there, um, I think it's very relevant with budget day coming up now, which will be next major protest aside the doll. Uh, Simon Coveney, I can only call it, Patricia, an outburst. To even consider bringing the army out to protect all them will send shivers in the stock markets right around the world and cost millions of investment in this country that the army is now protecting the Irish parliament 
What a ridiculous statement. OK, I don't think it's just Simon Coveney. I've heard other politicians uh, saying it as well. OK, listen, uh, we leave it there. Uh, thank John, you. thank you for that. And thanks for joining us. So wait, 18-103-103. Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. And we're stronger when together. Ours to protect. Brought to you by C103. The IBI and funded by the Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out ours to protect.ie for more info. This week on Earth to Protect, we explore a new climate action arts project responding to the ecological, cultural, industrial and historical heritage of Cork's Glen River Park. The project called Glenafuca, referring to the fact the area was once known as Glen of the Spooks, aims to celebrate, protect and improve the water quality of the Glen River as it runs its course across the north side of Cork City. Initiated by multidisciplinary Cork-based artist Julie Forrester and delivered in collaboration with the Glen Resource Centre and the local authority water programme. The project aims to raise environmental awareness and promote active citizenship through a programme of creative offerings and activities that nurture a deep and responsible relationship with the park. Julie Forrester explains how the idea came about. I began to be interested in all the layers uh, of connection and all of the stories that people were telling me about the park about its significance in their lives and the history of their families. And just there was so much that it kept on giving and keeps on giving. And I thought it would be interesting to bring out some of those um, stories in a project uh, that is collaborative and uh, working with people in the community to, to bring those stories forward and make a connection with the river. The One of the important things is is just how how important the river is to us and how important uh, wildlife and biodiversity is uh, in this age of um, climate crisis as well. With combined funding of €56,500 provided by Cork City Council, the local authority water programme, local creative youth partnership and creative climate action fund, Glenafuca will explore the ecology of the valley through six artist projects over the course of a year. We're going to begin with a project with Spoon and Bloom, who are Annie Forrester and Erin Ross, and they're a partnership. They work uh, in making animations um, for people like the Peatlands Trust and all about the environment. They want to map the Glen. Uh, They're inviting people to come along and tell their stories about connections with the park and to map those down. So it'll be a drawing workshop and a walk and just sharing stories and exploring the the environment as they go. Um, And then they'll collect all of the stories that and all of the maps that people have made and create um, an interactive animation that will be available on the Glanafuka website. There's a project that's already underway. Um, Anne Dalton is um, doing a project with women's voices from the Glen and making poems about uh, the interviews that she's conducted with these women about their lives and connections. And the other project that is beginning is Eleanor Rivers, Ordinary Gifts. So Eleanor wants to make real contact with the river um, and to recreate rituals, I suppose, rituals that we have from the past and from folklore and 
just walk those through in the park with other people and create new um, rituals with, with the environment and with the water. Julie Forrester says the conversation around climate change continues. I stop all the time and talk to people in the park and we look at the colour of the river, we look at the, the wildlife that isn't there anymore and some that is there. So there is a definite and palpable uh, connection, I think, with um, with climate change. And uh, the project really is about keeping it upbeat while, while delving a little bit more into what we can do and how we can live with climate change. It's to keep the... Um, the positivity going and to nurture that connection with nature that that keeps us positive. And how can people follow the project? Uh, we have a website. Uh, we have an old website, <laughs> but we have a new website coming. <laughs> and the website is www.glaunafuka.ie. And Glaunafuka is G-L-E-A-N-N-A. P-H-U-C-A. To learn more about the project, as Julie said, you can visit www.glenafuka.ie or check the show notes of this episode. And we're stronger when together. Ours to Protect, brought to you by C103, the IBI, and funded by the Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out ours to protect.ie for more info. And thank you to Mairead for our hours to protect and good luck to everybody at the Cork's Glen River uh, Park project. It uh, really does sound uh, fascinating. I mentioned that traveller report uh, earlier on uh, that was uh, conducted by uh, UCC and just shocking to think that there are some schools uh, where they have a class where they segregate the traveller children, take them all out of the different classes throughout primary school and put them into one class. I thought that day was long, long gone in this country. As prompted, read by WhatsApp to say every child on our island is entitled to be encouraged, enabled and empowered to be their very best selves. This should be the sworn objective of every single teacher in this country. Children who are not average present teaching challenges. They don't present learning difficulty. This very much applies to children from all parts of our society. Children from the travelling community as individuals have at least as much to offer as they may need help to learn. Brendan Kennelly once said, we are all our own geniuses. And that's true. We're all our own genius. And that is and that's very good words uh, from the late great Brendan Kennelly. Thank you uh, to uh, Red for that. And other people were saying that they were shocked to hear that report as well, particularly the bit about encouraging members of the travelling community at 16 to leave school at 16. If anything, uh, they need to be encouraged uh, to stay. Oh, eight one eight one zero three one zero three. We're going to take a break. Uh, we've got news at 12 midday on the way. It is uh, Friday, so we're going to talk movies and we're also talking talking with a young student who is planning on cycling from Cork to Killarney tomorrow and he's doing it to remember his grandmother. Cork Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie Now a lot of commentary uh, coming into us this morning via calls and uh, texts and uh, WhatsApps and we'll do our very, very best to get to all of them. And my apologies 
If I don't get to read out all of your comments, and I know it does, uh, it frustrates some people. We had a, a very angry uh, caller to Bernie one of the days that she was sitting in for John Paul, uh, accusing me of all kinds of things because I didn't read out a comment that he had sent in. I think it was last Friday and it was just, it had been a busy day. Listen, we do, we really do try our best. Anyway, lovely text has come in. This is tying in with my chat with the report on the uh, travelling community and showing that in some, now, and we're hoping it's a very small, small number of schools uh, that they're not integrating the children in with the rest of the children in the school. That prompted us to just say, as a principal teacher, my father enrolled some children into his primary school from a family in the local area who happened to be from the travelling community. At the time, and this was years ago, says this uh, texture, when integration was very much frowned upon by society. Parents were up in arms and they actually protested to my father that he would not make his own children mix with these pupils. My dad said, ah, oh, funny about that now. He said, it's not, uh, I'm, uh, he's, her dad said that that's not, not only did his own children mix with all of the pupils in the school, but actually his daughter was best friends with the daughter of a family from the travelling community. Parents were so stunned that their arguments against the situation ebbed away. The travelling children went on to integrate really well and attended school daily until they left after sixth class. Isn't that a gorgeous, gorgeous story? I don't know if your father is with us or not. If he is, tell him my solution. They're the type of teachers that we need and that we still need today. So well done. And particularly at a time when it's that listener says, you know, integration was always been frowned upon uh, by society to, you know, really stand up there and see this is the right and the proper thing to do. So well done uh, to your dad and thank you for your WhatsApp and thanks for sharing that uh, with us. John says, Patricia, you did an email to your programme yesterday talking about the amount, the amount of welfare payment that is given to Ukraine refugees who arrived on our, sh- our shores fleeing war and the fact that it is and continues to be a big pull bringing more to come to this country. The government should start reducing this in the next budget and bring in what we pay and what we give the Ukrainian refugees every week, bring it in in line with the European average because we're way above the European average on what we give in social welfare uh, to the Ukrainian refugees. While people here on the housing list, many have been on a housing this for 10 years or more and yet modular houses are being provided for some refugees. This is what is creating anger amongst a lot of Irish people. That is from John. Thank you, John. Uh, people commenting and reacting to Finbar, who is doesn't like the word geriatric and feels it shouldn't be used and he suggests it should be uh, replaced with OAP. He doesn't like to see if he's going for an appointment to see the word geriatric written over a door or he doesn't like a sign in a hospital pointing to the geriatric uh, ward. This texter says, I totally agree with Finbar and the term geriatric, uh, where whatever its origins, and as I say, it does come from uh, the Greek language. It's now very much seen as a derogatory term. Likewise, my mum, had a skin condition and her doctor called it, wait for this, senile dermatitis. My mother was totally shocked and we were appalled as her condition could simply have been called dermatitis. Did they have to put the word senile down before dermatitis? My mum thankfully had all of her, has had all of her faculties but the doctor was oblivious to the offence caused. I think that the word senior should replace many of these ageist terms. Senior is used in many tourist places already, possibly because tourist organisations aim to engage positively with all of their 
customers. And any older person of my acquaintance finds the use of the word senior to be much more a much more elevating term. Well done on raising this issue, Patricia, as the words that are used in some settings can hurt and demean our wonderful senior politician who do not deserve to be forced into a geriatric uh, box. Yeah, and words can really be hurtful and offensive. And as you say, the doctor probably wasn't even aware of it. But dermatitis is a skin condition regardless of what age. Why do you have to put senile dermatitis? I, I, I'd be with your mother on that one. And thank you for your text. Someone else says that the old should be removed from the old age pension. They should just call it the state pension. I think in official documents, I'd have to double check, but I think in official documents it is the state pension. I think we seem to refer to it as the old age uh, pension. Uh, But there's another one that can cause uh, offence. Hi, Patricia. No, I don't see geriatric as an offensive word. I think old age pensioner is much more offensive. We use the word paediatric when we're talking about children. You don't refer to paediatrics as the children's department. Remember, geriatrics don't have the word old age in it. So I prefer geriatric than to have somebody referred to as old or uh, older. 0818 103 103 and then on the price of petrol and diesel and on electric cars versus fossil fuel uh, cards. Uh, Willie says, Patricia, in in Glanthorne last week, diesel went up 8 cent a litre. It went up overnight. And now in the last week, I've been watching the prices, it's gone up a further 11 cent. This is truly shocking. Where is it all going to end? Also, my electric bill. The last bill was €178. Just got one in today and it was €234. I live in a one-bedroomed apartment. Goodness me, isn't that incredible? And you would have thought that kind of the last four months, summer months, you would have thought the bills would have been pretty much the same. But that's um, that's over nearly 60 euro of uh, a difference. That is a loss. And Willie says, by the way, that he is a uh, pensioner. So I, I don't know what Willie's circumstances are, but he could be living on a very tight budget. And, you know, to suddenly have a bill come, come, come in that's over and above what you were expecting, it can throw out then paying off or buying food or doing everything else that you need to do. On SUVs, listening to the comment on SUVs outside the school gates, along with polluting the environment, I'm wondering how these families are affording to run them with the cost of living. But I suppose that goes back to while we do have a cost of living crisis, there are some people that are still doing okay and are able to manage and are not suffering the effects of the cost of uh, living. Someone else says, so much is the cost to fill one of those SUV cars with petrol or diesel? I thought the government was coming down hard on these vehicles with an engine over two litres or more and now they are going electric you cannot hear these electric cars they are dangerous also our roads are not built for these huge cars and yet Danny was making the point that some people might go for the bigger cars uh, because they're better on the roads because the roads are so bad and they don't get as damaged so like you can see another argument for that. SUV on the school run, says another texter. When I was a kid, I used my two feet to get me to and from school. Why do kids need to be driven right up to the school gates nowadays? I think this generation is too soft. In fairness, 
In fairness to uh, Dr. Hannah Daly, who I spoke with, you know, who's coming from this from an environmental point of view, and she drives her children to school as well. Uh, she says the problem is there's too many cars on our roads and our roads are too busy. And any time we raise that issue of why do parents drop their children to the school gate, they'll say it's a health and safety issue. They, You know, when you went to school, there wasn't as much cars on the road is what today's parents will say and that's the reason that they've no choice but for a safety point of view they drive their children and uh, collect. Tim says Patricia the average weight of a small compact SUV is 1,380 kgs. A medium compact SUV is 1,630 kgs. The average electric vehicle is 2,000 kgs. Electric cars are getting heavier and faster than petrol and diesel cars. The government would want to get their facts right before penalising the wrong people. And actually, and one of our listeners, I've got fantastic listeners who, when when I'm doing different issues on the programme, will come up with a bit of research and send it on to me that I don't have time to do when I'm live on air. And somebody sent on a really good piece that's come out from the States. It came out earlier this year in the States, uh, where they were warning drivers that some electric cars are so heavy, they risk crushing smaller vehicles if, God forbid, you end up in a collision. And they were talking in the States about the extra weight in electric uh, cars and a lot of it stems from the fact of the oversized mass of the batteries. And the head of the National Transportation Safety Board in the States uh, was actually in Washington giving a speech at the Transportation Research Board, I suppose, something like our Arctis committees. And she was talking about the different electric vehicles and the weight of them. And uh, she was saying that in some cases, a battery pack in one particular car that she had, uh, now it was a Hummer, but again, you are, you are talking about the States, but the electric, just the battery pack in the GMC Hummer was roughly the entire weight of a typical Honda Civic and just making the point that if they came into collision the person in the Honda Civic wouldn't stand uh, a chance. So yes, that is something that now has to be recognised. It isn't just the heavier cars are not just diesel and petrol cars. It also looks like the electric vehicles are getting heavier as well. Hi Patricia, listening to the lady that was on to you earlier about the electric cars, that was Professor Hanny Daly um, and who who would buy a second hand one? The danger would be if you buy a second hand car particularly an electric car, they can bring with it their own trouble and the danger of the batteries packing uh, packing up. She also made the point that her electric car is for a runaround. I wonder what her main car is and uh, I didn't think to ask her that but that should have been a relevant question. Thank you. Someone else said more emissions in the production of electric uh, cars than what you save. Nobody ever seems to talk about that. Patricia, this Transport Minister, Eamon Ryan, says Heidi has his own agenda. I've said it before. If you don't have two wheels, he doesn't want to know about you. I feel, says Heidi, that he's the worst transport minister we ever have. You may not agree, but many, many people say the same. And he and the Green Party have caused us a myriad of troubles and the reason why so many of us are struggling to uh, make ends meet. And Heidi also says that Roan Atkinson the actor had an electric car, but he wasn't happy with it and he gave and he gave it back. And your views on the Green Party and on Eamon Ryan were reflected in that opinion poll that I, the the Irish Times opinion poll, which show again uh, a decline in the Green, um, in popularity of the Greens. So a lot of people not happy with the Greens. Uh, Joe also isn't happy with Eamon Ryan. He's also not happy with the Minister for Agriculture. Two of them together, he doesn't think are great. But then a mechanic now is coming in 
not in defence of electric cars, I have to say, saying, hi Patricia, why are people so simple to brainwash? Um, I am a mechanic. And anyone who buys an electric car, I think, would need their head examined. Second-hand electric cars are simply unsellable. No garage will take them back. They are unaffordable, the new ones, for the average person. They are also, this is another issue, very, very few trained people to repair an EV. And the important thing is our climate. Our climate is too damp for electric cars. Any proper mechanic will tell you this. And any mechanic who says different is looking after his own interests. They must be selling the electric cars. So it's time for the public to wake up. Electric cars are not the future of this country. And that's coming from a mechanic listening to us. 0818 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Newmarket Sports and Leisure, they are organising a scrap metal uh, collection. It's going on this evening between 5 and 7 and again tomorrow between half 9 and 4 at the Astro Turf Car Park at the GAA grounds. All types of uh, metal and old machinery welcome. And if you need your item collected, they have a collection service, but you need to call them 87 Kaylee sets going on in the Marion Hall in Ballinhasic tonight, dancing from half nine. Music is by Tim Joe and Anne. Admission ten euro does include teas. Bingo as always on a Friday night. Mallow GA Complex. This week's jackpot six thousand three hundred euro, and the annual Friday night bingo in Kildallery is on tonight in the store at the Creamery Yard. Uh, with this week's jackpot, 2,500 uh, euro. And the Well Project are holding their Harvest Moon Walk, starting from Kinsale Community School Car Park at half past eight this evening. The Fun Walk will support Kinsale Youth Support Services, Men's Sheds and the Youth Community Centre. And the full moon last night was spectacular, so I take it it'll be equally as good uh, tonight. And it's panto time in Fomoy for the first time since pre COVID and auditions are going to be held at Fomoy Youth Centre on Sunday the 8th of October but we're putting the shout out for any adults who might be interested in joining in the fun this year's panto is Woody at the OK Corral and organisers are particularly appealing for men to join the group we're always trying to give suggestions for people to take up a new hobby, join the panto you'll make friends of nothing else you're invited to come along for a chat and a meet up on Sunday the 8th of October and you can call them for further details 087 Three three nine one six five two, and good luck to everybody involved in the pantomime in Formoy this year. Court today on C one hundred three with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. Cmig.ie. Actually, we were hoping earlier today to talk on the program with a young Cork family uh, who have had a devastating uh, cancer diagnosis. It's a terminal diagnosis of the dad, but unfortunately he became unwell and and had to go to hospital so uh, we'll hopefully catch up with them uh, next week on the programme but it's apt that we turn uh, that we talk about the Irish Cancer Society because we know how supportive the Irish Cancer Society are to people like that little family and others that are on that cancer journey Emid Moore is a student at UCC and this weekend he plans to cycle from Cork to Killarney in aid of the Irish Cancer Society and he joins me to explain why. Uh, Good afternoon team it Hi Patricia, thank you so much for having me on. Well it's a real pleasure and I have to firstly ask you, am I pronouncing your first name correctly? 
No, unfortunately, you're pronouncing it wrong. It's Emed. It's Irish for Emmet. Emed. 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 Okay, yeah. all right. Because we were discussing it here and I hadn't come across it. It's, oh, yeah. it's Irish for? Emmet, yeah. It's Emmet. very unusual. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, very unusual name. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, am I right in saying you're doing this in memory of your grandmother? Yeah, in memory of my grandmother. And also, I know of many people, uh, friends of the family who, are, who have cancer at the moment and friends who have loved ones who have cancer as well and some have actually passed away during the duration of this fundraiser as well so well, that, that's, that's it means a, a lot to a lot of people and how long ago did you lose your grandmother uh, it was about 25 years ago it was before I was born but my mom, you know she, she goes on about her all the time you know it affected her a lot Ah, oh, right. Yeah. So it's for your mum as well. Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's something really lovely um, about that. Now, you're, you're cycling. For, talk to me about your cycling. Are you a keen, you're obviously a keen cyclist. Uh, yeah, I am a keen. I'm not a member of a cycling club exactly, but last summer I started doing long distance cycles around Cork Harbour and out west towards places such as Dripsy and Coltford. So I kind of just uh, really enjoyed it. So I thought I'd combine cycling and, you know, this great cause to help people, you know. What's the longest cycle you've ever done? So last week I did 104 kilometres. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the sake of it. Um, and and Cork to Killarney, is that about 100? Yeah, it's about 100 kilometres, yeah. So last week I was training for for the cycle, so I did 104 last Saturday. You actually, yeah. you actually even went further. And yeah. it's tomorrow, I know you're going to be heading off. Have you... Talk me through the route and what time you're hoping to get underway. So I'm hoping to start at about uh, 9am. So I'm going to be going from Cork City Centre to Dripsy, then to Belnamarov, uh, then to Rushing, Mill Street, Ratmore and then Killarney. Yeah, the we- can I, I can tell you now, the weather forecast isn't great tomorrow morning. No, it's not, but uh, I'll be fine. I was out last Saturday, it was raining as well, so I'm ready to go, like. It doesn't. And yeah. would, would you? Would there be anybody doing it with you? Uh, no, I'm doing it myself. But my dad will meet me at uh, certain times just to check up on me. Yeah. Because you uh, will you take breaks? Yeah, I'll take the break in Belmar and Mill Street. That's the plan. Okay, and then your will your dad drive you home? He will. Yeah, he will. <laughs> I couldn't cycle home now. That would be, be way too far. And after doing a cycle like that, are you are you exhausted the next day? Um, yeah, yeah, you would be. Yeah, you would be exhausted the next day. Your legs would be, you know, in in bisque like. But yeah, if you keep if you keep hydrated and you take breaks, like distance actually flies by very quickly. You'd be surprised. Yeah. But you like these big long cycles. Yeah, I do. I, I like challenging myself. So well done, well yeah. done. And have you ever done anything like this in aid of a charity before? No, I've never done any kind of charity work. This is the first time I've done. So yeah, it's, it's very I- exciting. And I know you set up um, a Just Giving page. Yeah, I set up a Just Giving page, yeah. I checked it yesterday. You're, you're nearly, ha- you're over halfway there when I checked uh, yeah, yesterday. Yeah, over halfway to go there. The sport has been really good, like, it's been amazing. And it's coming from family and friends and yeah, random everyone. strangers. Yeah, it's been, yeah, uh, it's been unbelievable, yeah. I think it's because of the charity you've picked, um, the Irish Cancer Society, and there isn't one of us who hasn't been touched. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do amazing work. And what are you studying in UCC? I'm studying uh, government and political science on the second year. Government and political science. Yeah, in UCC. With the long-term goal of doing what? Uh, I want to be a journalist. Okay. Um, so, kind of writing about politics, 
something I'm very interested in. So hoping to be a maybe a political journalist in the future. Well, yeah. you don't want to become a, a politician. Uh, no, I think I might stay out of that. Well, we we may. Well, we will look forward to interviewing the in you in the years ahead when you're commentating on something yeah. that's going on at Leinster House. In the meantime, good luck with the cycle tomorrow. Thank you. Uh, justgiving dot com, and if you just actually type in. Uh, Eamon's name it's E-I-M E-Father I-D uh, it'll come up straight away listen good luck with it and we Perfect. hope you raise lots of money thanks for joining thank us thank you so much bye. for having me thank as you. our pleasure bye 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 lovely to see young people like that doing something and giving something back and the Irish Cancer Society God knows we know uh, what a fantastic organisation they are a lot of people still co- commenting on the geriatrics uh, geri- the word geriatric it does I have to say looking at the commentary coming in since Finbar kicked this off it's divided. I think more are agreeing with Fimber that they don't like the word, but there are others who, who don't find it offensive at all. But somebody said geriatric is used to describe mothers of 38 years and over when they are pregnant. OK, I was wondering, I know with my friend, she was over in the States and she was 35 and she was deemed geriatric. But in this country, when you hit 38, if you are pregnant, uh, it will be on your file that you are a geriatric mother. It makes me so mad, uh, says this um, a texter. And there was also a comment uh, in from someone else from Dermot saying um, when in hospital recently the person was asked, are you here with your partner? The person replied, after 50 years, I'd say he's more than my partner. But Dermot said, why do they not use the term wife or husband anymore? Uh, they just it's whereas now everything is is you described a partner. I said again, I that has got a lot to do with not wanting to offend someone uh, because obviously we now have divorce in this country because we have second relationships in this country because not everybody opts to get married. People can be in civil partnerships and they never actually marry. I suppose people are afraid of offending by saying to somebody, your husband or your wife. So by using the term partner. They're not going to offend uh, anyone. Uh, But Dermot uh, takes offence to that and wonders uh, should we go back? Should everyone be referred to as a husband or a wife? But I can actually understand uh, why people do that. Because I know certainly with myself and John Paul, if we are discussing doing something here in the programme and we have somebody coming in, we all, we we never just jump in and assume that somebody is married. So we regularly will use that term a partner and we're, we're doing it to try not to be offensive. 0818103103. John Paul takes your calls. You can text our WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. And we're going to get some movie suggestions with Mark Malone. Good afternoon, Mark. Hi, Patricia. Two movies. Uh, one is called Expendables and the other is called The Dive. Let me take a trailer from Expendables. To choose this life over friends. Over family, and we never quit. Terrorists have taken nuclear bombs. Let's prevent World War Three. I got you. That's what I'm talking about. Let's fly, baby. Time to get loud. You're welcome. Don't mention it. When they say romance is dead. Oh. 
Now, this is Expendables and it's got four in the title. So I'm assuming this is the fourth. It's been a long time since we've had one of these, isn't it? It's been about 10 years, yeah. Is because, wow. yeah, they, got, they, they made the first three pretty quickly. And, yeah. and we, we thought they were all then. And <laughs> it's been 10 years. Uh, so, yeah, why it's here, I'm, I have absolutely no idea. It's Expendables 4 or Expendforbles uh, because yeah. they got the four in the middle of the, t- the title of uh, the film there. It's no use me asking you if you've seen any of these no. episodes. No, they, yeah, they, don't, they don't float me yeah, at all. No, no. I'm, I'm aware of them. I know what they are, but yeah, they wouldn't be my genre. No, not so ever. Yeah, I'm, I know you wouldn't you wouldn't like them at all, and I didn't particularly like them, and I haven't particularly liked them. Even the first one. I mean, the first one, people got very very excited because the first one, the, the draw, of the first one was that was the fact that they managed to attract all of these big big uh, kind of um, cast. Yeah, a big cast, but also yeah. the, the big action stars of the '80s and '90s. Uh, for example, you know, in the, in the first film, you not only had Statham, you not only had uh, Sylvester Stallone and Dolph Lundgren, but you had the likes of you know Arnold Schwarzenegger. You had Bruce Willis and Mickey Rourke, you know what I mean? I think in the second film, Van Damme turned up. There was a bigger role for Schwarzenegger in that. Terry Crews was in it. So it was a big, big, big cast. Um, I can't tell you about uh, the third film because I didn't see the third film because I thought, I'm not watching that. Yeah, I remember watching the first one and that was to do with all the hype around... Exactly, yeah. And it was it was a big, big kind of macho kind of movie of just, you know, men running around, being macho, being tough and um, explosions and bullets and car chases. And I I was very bored by it. I didn't particularly like it at all. Uh, I didn't like the second. I don't remember anything about the second film, even though I know I've seen it. As I say, I didn't uh, see the third film. And I didn't particularly want to go and see this either, to be honest with you. But there's nothing out, Harry. Yeah, not a lot. Around, it was either yeah. this or The Nun 2. <laughs> I wasn't going to. Watch that. So you went for this. <laughs> so I went for this. I, I, when I realised it was the Expendables, I was thinking, are, 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 are they all still alive? <laughs> Just about, yeah. Sylvester oh, Stallone is in his late seventies. Um, um, you know, Lundgren doesn't particularly look very well in the film. And I should point out that there's an awful lot of blue screen in this film, so you get the impression there was an awful lot of kind of you know the lads standing in front of a big green screen and not really getting involved in the action and having stunt doubles do all That's the rest of the work. That's because of their age. Come exactly. On. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, and uh, Sylvester. Stallone is 77 now I think uh, even though he's still in amazing shape looks he really does well, yeah. and he looks better here than he did in the first film 13 years ago because uh, way back then his, he had this kind of black dye in his hair and his beard and he just looked really really odd and weird um, but then at least in that film he directed it and he wrote it and he's always been a very good writer uh, so at least the first film had a kind of a tacky kind of, uh, kind of appeal to it even though I didn't particularly like it uh, very much And uh, but he's, this is the film now where he's beginning to kind of move away and he's handing the reins now to Jason Statham who not only stars here but he also Produces uh, as well. Should point out, by the way, bit of a uh, bit of a giveaway here. Sylvester Stallone is hardly in the film, so if you're going <laughs> to see it to see Stallone, I'd like to point out the fact that he's in it at the start, he's in it at the end, and uh, in between, there's not much of him. I have to admit that. So the story is is that uh, this group called Ocelot, uh, they want to start World War Three, but um, so they've stolen all these nuclear warheads, and they're on their way in this ship on the way to Russia to let those uh, warheads off to start World War Three. So the Expendables are um, sent in to go to the ship and uh, to retrieve the nuclear warheads. Uh, they're also joined this time by Megan Fox. I mean, I've read somewhere that uh, there was going to be an offshoot that was going to be uh, of uh, the Expendables and it was going to be an all-female Expendables. It was going to be called Expendables. Oh, for God. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> which, which, thankfully, they decided not to go with, although I think there could be a kind of a television series. 
Here they are joined by Andy Garcia and Andy Garcia really does look as if throughout the whole film is that he's constantly reminding himself that there will be a paycheck at uh, the end oh. of the film. And, um, and there's also, but at least there's one good thing about the film and that's the introduction of Tony Ja. Tony Ja is a, a martial arts expert uh, from Hong Kong and he's made some great movies and uh, there's one terrific uh, fight scene between him and Jason Statham which is probably the highlight of the film which is why it's in the trailer uh, because there's nothing else really that I can talk about that's, uh, you know, positive about this thing. The thing is the, the, the thing about these films, when I say that the first film was very kind of macho, uh, all of them are all very macho and they're all basically playing the same part. And if you look at something like, I know I refer to Jaws quite a lot, but if you look at the three main characters, they're all disparate personalities, yeah. you know what I mean? And here they all basically play the same part and, uh, you know, there's, 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 there's you know, there's, there's no distinction between them. Then. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And there's just the same old, uh, you know, um, crash bang wallop stuff that we've been watching for, the, for years and it was very, very very boring. And weirdly, even though I, as I was watching it, I didn't know the budget of the, of the film. And I was thinking, this is really, really cheap looking because there was a time if there was an explosion, they'd do it for real. Here they don't. It's all CGI. There's an awful lot of CGI in this film. As I say, the actors look as if they're, they're, they're sitting in front of CGI screens all the time. And so it really looks cheap. So the shock to me that it had a $100 million budget, which must have gone on paychecks. It had to have had yeah. because it didn't, yeah. certainly didn't go on the special effects. And I think the film has only uh, got a return of a about 30 million. So that's been very disappointing. So whether or not they'll be in Expendables 5, I have no idea. <laughs> More than likely not. OK, Expendables. Um, for that uh, fight scene between Tony Ja and oh. uh, Jason Statham, I'll give it two. Oh, <laughs> OK, you're holding back on the other eight. Now, your second one is The Dive. And I'm straight away thinking, is this something to do with underwater where I end up watching these movies and I have to hold my breath? Did you ever see the film The Fall that time about those two girls that were on top of the, the tower? I did. Um, well, this is kind of the complete opposite because these are about two women who are under sea and get trapped under sea. So it's a completely oh. different uh, kind of idea to the, the tower, which I really liked. I mean, I presume you were terrified the, by the tower. Oh, yeah, because a lot and of the tension were. and you're on the edge of your seat the entire time. Exactly, and that's what they're trying to, um, to, to, trying to do here. It doesn't really quite work, but it almost does. We got uh, two sisters, Sophie Lowe and Louisa Krause here, and they go to this beautiful kind of remote location for a dive. Um, they only meet up once a year and so they, over the years, you know, their relationship has, uh, you know, hasn't been great. They don't really know too much about each other because they have very little communication with with each other, apart from when they actually get to this dive, which they do every year. I think the film was filmed in Malta, so Malta looks beautiful and uh, it's a beautiful location where they decided to uh, film it. So they go on this dive, which is just next to this cliff. and uh, But whilst they're diving, the cliff begins to erode. And so this rock fall happens. And so therefore, the, the rocks fall upon them. Uh, the older sister gets trapped um, by a rock and can't escape. Uh, she's about um, 20 metres down, uh, I think. And so in that way, it kind of reminded me, remember 127 hours mm-hmm. where he gets his arm trapped? Don't worry, by the way, yeah. there's no decapitations here okay, <laughs> whatsoever. Okay, so at least that's, that. one, yeah. that's at least one good thing about them. Uh, so the younger sister, who um, you know seems to be the kind of the wild one, has to uh, do her very best because she doesn't get trapped, whereas her sister does, and she's got to try and save her. Uh, and so for films like this, 
this to work, you know, the films have got to be tightly edited and tightly directed as it was with the tower. And they've got to come up with kind of clever ideas to kind of keep the kind of story along. Yeah. And it does work up to a point. The problem for me is, though, is that uh, the, the, the older sister who is trapped, um, we find out in flashbacks why she's having problems in her life. And what the problem with that is that every time it, that happens, it takes away from the tension because the tension is boiling up and it's, it's building and it's building. And, and then you're she holding has your breath because she's underwater. Yeah, yeah, and every time it happens, you yeah. go, no. breathe again. And also because she's running out of air, she also has begins to kind of hallucinate. And so therefore you don't know what's real and what isn't. And as I say, it just drains the tension from the film. And I think that's the problem. Uh, the two women are terrific. They're very, very good. There's very good chemistry between them. It's very well directed. Um, I remember the director of um, Thunderball, the third Bond film, I think. It was a Cubby Broccoli maybe who said that he'd, he'd never make a film underwater again because a lot of the action was underwater. And the problem is, is that because it all seems in slow motion, there's no real kind of drive or energy to it. And he said he'd never do that again. Uh, that ca- could be kind of the point and uh, part of the criticism that I would have uh, for this. It's not necessarily always underwater because there are times when like, the younger sister has got to um, um, go on shore to try and, and, get, uh, help. and get help. And, and so that kind of breaks the kind of claustrophobic kind of darkness of uh, underwater. Water. And they obviously can't talk when they're underwater. Well, they can. They have communications through oh, masks. Oh, do they? Yes, okay, they do. all right. All right. And, um, and so, yeah, so it, look, it is well written. It is well directed. Uh, but as I say, just uh, when they keep just breaking the tension, that's the problem for me. Other than that, I certainly recommend it. It's not as good as The Tower, uh, the, the full yeah. film, uh, but um, I Worth certainly enjoyed watch. it. I, I, very much so indeed, yeah. Mark it out of 10? I'll give it 7. 7 out of 10, yeah. okay. And it's called uh, The Dive. Because when I saw it, I was straight up saying, oh, I wonder if this, I don't know if you saw on Netflix, The Deepest Breath. Uh, there's a documentary on Netflix and there's an Irish guy uh, in it that was superb that, I haven't like, seen it yet but I, I hope I will at some time a lot of that yeah. is underwater and that had me on the end of my seat the tension in that in a documentary that I wasn't expecting at all and I certainly wasn't expecting the ending that's well worth a watch ok listen thank you have a lovely week and we'll chat to you next week that is uh, Mark Malone our movie review that's where I leave you for today and indeed for this week thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing Mark Malone is in for Nick Richards again this afternoon and we'll talk to you on Monday morning at uh, 10 until then I'm Patricia Mess Good afternoon. Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie.